0: So we're in Genesis uh, chapter 26, Genesis chapter 26, and we are now at the midway point through this book. And by the way, just uh, thank you so much for your singing, uh, even without sound or whatever, you know, the things working normally, you all filled up the room and I really, really appreciate your singing. One of the reasons that we sing is to commend the truths of God uh, to one another and to remind ourselves of those truths. And, and we wanna sing songs that are true about God and we wanna sing songs that resonate with our Christian experience. And, and so we sing things like prone to wander, Lord I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Now don't those lines resonate with you? They resonate with me. Uh, we love God, we wanna please God, We know His way is better than our way, and yet, nevertheless, we have hearts that wander. We often seem to be walking contradictions, and and therefore, for that reason, we should be able to totally relate to the man, Isaac. Now, in our study through Genesis, we've already met Isaac. He's the child of promise. He's the miracle son of Abraham and Sarah in their old age. He's heir to the covenant promises of God to bless the whole world through their family. Yet, Isaac is often eclipsed by both his father and his son. Uh, He's nowhere near as as great as Abraham, the the spiritual giant, the father of the faithful. Isaac tends to get lost in his shadow. Uh, What's more, Isaac isn't anywhere near as interesting as his son Jacob will be. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. And so, compared to his father and son, uh, Isaac seems kind of plain and ordinary, and is often considered the weakest of the three patriarchs, and maybe that's why I appreciate Isaac. Uh, in some ways, it's easier to identify with him than his larger-than-life father and son. And the reason I'm looking forward to exploring this chapter with you is because the dominating theme of chapter 26 is not really the failures and successes of Isaac, but it's the faithfulness and the grace of Isaac's God. So if you do feel prone to wander and prone to leave the gods you love, maybe maybe you're coming here this morning reeling from a recent fall spiritually or or maybe you feel like uh you see other Christians who seem like rock solid spiritual giants and you are fickle and and failing um or maybe you're just weighed down by the by the trials and circumstances uh, of life. My prayer is that God's Word in Genesis 26 is going to be a source of encouragement and refreshment for you. So, uh, even though you just sat down, I'm going to ask you to stand up one more time. Stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. We are in Genesis chapter 26, and we're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to read almost the entire chapter. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now, there was a famine in the land. uh, to your offspring, all these lands. And at your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he feared to say, uh, my, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might have easily lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now, the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water's ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with uh, Huzath, his advisor, and Pichal, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. And let us make a covenant with you that you will do, to, do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths and Isaac sent them on their way and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba; Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Let's pray. Father, may your hand of blessing be upon the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, I agree with many scholars that at least some of these events and, uh, in this chapter actually take place before the last half of chapter 25. They take place before Jacob and Esau are born. Um, I'm not dogmatic on that. I just, I think that's probably the case with at least some of this. For example, it would be quite a challenge for Isaac to, to pull a fast one on Abimelech and the inhabitants of Gerar, pretending to be brother and sister, you know, if they've got their, their sons with them. Not everything in Genesis is in chronological order, but, but is more in thematic order, And Moses' purpose here is that Isaac is the legitimate heir of the Abrahamic promises and blessing, and he serves as a transition figure between Abraham and Jacob, which is going to underscore the significance of what happens in the next chapter as Isaac transfers the blessing to Jacob. And beyond that, I think God in this chapter gives us beautiful portraits of God's grace to his people. And there are four manifestations of of God's grace in our text today that I want us to think about. The first one is the grace of God's presence. The grace of God's presence. Look with me at verse one. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, when we read, when we read this chapter a moment ago, you may have already noticed some things that sound familiar. There's some mirrors between Isaac's life and Abraham's. And one of those mirrors is a famine hitting Canaan. And you've got to remember the significance of this. Canaan is the land that God promised to give to Abraham and to his offspring. Offspring that would become a great nation in that land, which would lead to this nation blessing the whole world through bringing forth the Savior of the world. But it's all contingent on the land, right? If there's no land, there's no nation. If there's no nation, there's no savior. If there's no savior, there's no blessing. And so, while God has called Isaac's family to dwell in Canaan with the uh, the expectation of one day actually possessing it, a threat to the land constitutes a threat to the promises of God. But more immediately, it constitutes a threat to Isaac's life. And of course, if Isaac dies, the promises die with him. And so, even though God has called his family to live in Canaan, uh, when the famine hits, his first instinct is to go to Egypt. Again, this should sound really familiar if you know Genesis well. This is exactly what his father Abraham did back in chapter 12. And going down to Egypt is really a reasonable decision when you think about it. You have Egypt with its Nile River and, and that surrounding region, very lush, very abundant with food, depending on Egypt during hard times, was something that many in Canaan did. It was the most natural and sensible thing to do, and and for Isaac, that's precisely the problem. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with not wanting to starve to death, but in the larger context of Genesis, Isaac's willingness to leave the land of promise is a problem, Canaan is the land that God called Abraham to go and live in. And if, if you remember a few chapters back when, when Abraham sent his, his, um, his servants, his servant to his relatives in Mesopotamia to find a wife for Isaac, you remember the charge that Abraham gave his servant? The charge was to, to find a wife for him and bring her back here to Canaan. Under no circumstances was Isaac to go back there and live there outside of the land of promise. Abraham and Isaac were called to to live in Canaan by faith, believing that God would give the entire land to their offspring one day. And during that last famine in chapter 12, when Abraham was disobedient and took off, things did not go very well. And God essentially, providentially, forced him back into the land. And so here, Isaac is following in his father's footsteps. And, And as with his father, this decision is not based on a command of God. Uh, or through a result of of praying. In fact, it's not until Isaac gets to Gerar, which is almost out of Canaan, that God appears to Isaac to stop his progress. And the problem is not that Isaac doesn't want to die in a famine, the problem is that his decision removed God from the center of the equation, and instead placed his own human thinking and logic in the center, and at its core, the decision was solely based on fear and not on faith. Think about this also. Consider how Moses' original audience would have regarded Isaac's choice. What did Egypt mean to them? For Israel, Egypt was the place of slavery. It was the place that they were just delivered from. And and as they left Egypt, where were they headed? They were headed to Canaan. They were headed to the Promised Land, the exact opposite destination of Isaac. Isaac. They are on their way to Canaan to finally take possession of the land that God had promised Abraham. And so hearing the word Egypt would have raised all kinds of red flags and alarm bells for Moses' Israelite audience as they're reading Genesis. Because the, to the Israelites, Egypt not just represented, did not just represent slavery, but it also represented their greatest temptation... Uh, You may remember after Israel left Egypt, they were constantly tempted to to go back to Egypt when things got rough, Uh, like during their times of famine, uh, when they lacked food, when they lacked water. They always had this pull in their hearts to give up God's call to Canaan and turn back to Egypt for survival. Yeah, sure, we were slaves in Egypt, but man, did we eat really good. Better slaves in Egypt than death trying to inherit the promised land. And so for Israel, it was in Egypt where security and safety was to be found. And, and so throughout the entire Bible, uh, not just in the, in the Pentateuch, in the books of Moses, but throughout the whole Bible, Egypt stands as a symbol of worldly safety and security and human strength apart from trusting in God for safety. And so, for example, you have centuries after uh, Isaac, the prophet Isaiah writes, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Was that not the problem with Isaac? Uh, he's being rational. He's being pragmatic. He's being logical, doing what seems sensible in his own eyes, taking everything into consideration except God. And so he rushes south to preserve his life. Now, we all have a tendency to do things like this. We all have a tendency to trust in Egypt, so to speak, uh, to live according to what is ex- uh, pragmatic to live according to what's expedient, uh, to live according to what we think is going to get the results that we want right away, to, to live according to what we think is gonna give us the quickest relief, to live according to all those things instead of living according to God and his word and trusting him. Uh, trusting in Egypt could look like many different things for many different people, I suppose. It, uh, it could be finding refuge and comfort in a secret sin that we think helps us to cope with stress in a time of trial. Could be an idolatrous relationship. Could be accumulating money and possessions to give yourself a sense of safety and peace and security. Whatever it might be, Egypt always promises much, but it never truly delivers in the end. And the first time reader of Genesis, uh, remembering Abraham's descent into Egypt in chapter 12, would be bracing himself now for disaster. Okay, we have played this game before, we've seen this, and now Isaac's doing the same thing. What's going to happen? But in the last moment, before Isaac goes through with his plan to make a break for the border and go into Egypt, God appears to Isaac. To do what? To smash his wayward servants? That's how some people think of God. Always wanting to bring the hammer down on his people at every infraction, at every mistake. Always eager to crush us the moment we go astray. If that's your view of God, then verse 2 is going to surprise you. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. That's an act of grace. God not only does not smash Isaac, but God doesn't let Isaac go through with his plans. Uh, Isaac is already acting in unbelief, but God doesn't let him go deeper into his sin. By the way, that's happened in my own life. Praise God for the times he's interrupted my plans of sinning. And then God says, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Now now that echoes God's call to Abraham to go by faith, dwell in Canaan. Uh, That's in uh, chapter 12, verse 1. And then God gives Isaac more grace. In verses 3 and 4, God says, I will give you all these lands. And and he says, I'll multiply your offspring. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if those promises sound familiar, they should. Uh, Those are the promises God gave to Abraham. Now they're officially being transferred to Isaac. Isaac, in that moment of fear, he needed an anchor for his soul to settle him. And what is noteworthy here is that the anchor that God gives him, the anchor that God gives him is not immediate elimination from the famine. The anchor that God gives him in that moment is God's very own word. He draws Isaac's attention back to the promises. And the very best of those promises is where God says, I will be with you. None of the other promises matter if that promise is not in there, right? Nothing else matters, If God is not with you, ultimately what Isaac needs to know in his trial and what you need to know in yours is that God is not some far off, distant, aloof deity where you've got no idea if he's paying attention to what's going on in your life, where you have no idea if he's aware of the details. I mean, am I just going through this trial on my own, God? Uh, Do do I have to fight and yell and throw a fit to get your attention? And maybe if I'm loud enough and lucky enough, maybe you'll turn your head and notice. What you need assurance of more than anything else is that God is actually with you every step of the way. Because if he's not, if he's not with you, nothing else matters. And God in his grace appears to wayward Isaac and says, Isaac, Isaac, you're running and fleeing in fear and you have forgotten the most important lesson of all, I'm right here. I'm right here, I'm right here with you. You see, Isaac forgot. And so he acted like he was on his own. We do the same thing. And the landscape of our trials looks very different if we think we're alone compared to if we know that God is with us. Landscape looks very different through those two different lenses. When Moses was afraid to take up God's call, Moses said, t- said, said this to God. He said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, but I will be with you. Or you think about Joshua, uh, charged with the task of taking on the powerful, giant Canaanite warlords in the promised land. How does God encourage him? You, you're an awesome fighter, Joshua, so y- you know, you're, gonna, you're gonna do this? You're gonna kick some tail? No, that's not what he does. He says, Joshua, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. In the New Testament, God gives strength to Paul in his missionary journeys when he says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. Jesus' message for all his disciples for all time, including you in this room, is the comforting promise that, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so, in your times of trial when you are tempted to turn your gaze to Egypt and flee there for relief uh, the solution is to instead fix your gaze on God and his promises of care and provision and most importantly his ever attentive presence for the lord will not forsake his people psalm 94:14 he will not abandon his heritage so it's the reminders of god's promises and God's presence that resettle Isaac. And as a result, we read in verse six that he settled in Gerar. And that's worth a little celebration. He was disobedient, but then he heard God's word, and now he obeys. Praise God for that. So we see the grace of of God's presence. And the next portrait of God's grace we see is the grace of God's protection. The grace of God's protection. So it's all good, Right? Isaac's back on track, and the credits roll, and we're done. Not quite. On the heels of getting past his disobedience and fear in verse 6, we find in verse 7 disobedience and fear. Alas, we are walking contradictions, aren't we? Uh, He's just like us. So let's take a look. Verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. This should look, again, very familiar to you. Uh, as, the, as the great baseball legend Yogi Berra said, this is deja vu all over again. Abraham had a big problem doing this. He engaged in deception about his wife, not once, but twice. And here Isaac is following in Abraham's footsteps. And while Isaac's initial fear at the beginning of the chapter was a fear of lack in a time of famine, now his problem is the fear of man, and in particular, the fear of what man might do to him. And and that's what makes Isaac's sin all the more atrocious. It's about what man might do to him. I I hope you can see the problem here. In an attempt to save his own skin, who does he throw under the bus? Wives? Wives? Oh, you're laughing. You know who I'm talking about. Rebecca. This is the exact opposite of Ephesians 5.22. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave up his life for her. But here, Isaac would rather give up his wife than his life. Now, in some ways... Forget the insensitivity of it. In some ways, this is a, uh, from a human perspective, perhaps a clever scheme. Because in the ancient Near East, there was a practice known as fratriarchy, uh, brother rule. Uh, the idea is that if a, a girl's father dies, the brother assumes the role of guardian and is also responsible for the marriage arrangements of the girl. And so, any love struck suitor who wants to marry, her would have to negotiate with the brother and perhaps Isaac plans that if multiple men fall for Rebecca, maybe he can draw off these negotiations for weeks and months and, and if need be uh, just kick the can down the road until they can escape and go elsewhere. It's really clever, right? It is. And it's horribly insensitive and unloving to his wife. You know, th- this, this issue of... of a husband's throwing the wives under the bus. This is, this is a sin issue, and it's been an issue since the very beginning. I'm, I'm so reminded of Genesis chapter th- uh, 3. This is one of the first sins of, of Adam. Uh, when Adam and Eve sin, they eat from the tree, and God comes after Adam and holds him accountable because even though Eve ate first, Adam is the leader of the home, and God comes to him and says, where are you? And Adam says, well, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. Is that what he says? What does he say? He says, the woman whom you gave to me. Right? He's blaming her, he's blaming him. But throwing him, her in the bus. But basically he's saying that if anybody needs to die, strike her down. Really puts also, it puts a, a Rebecca in a very awkward situation at best. And an extremely dangerous situation at worst. Not to mention he is leading her into sin by having her lie. Uh, Husbands are supposed to be leading their wives towards godliness and holiness and purity, not into sin. Uh, It's also not loving to all the people that they would be tricking and and could put others at risk of sin. Now, once again, as earlier, Isaac is trusting in his own cleverness and his own strength and his own resources. And once again, he's lost sight of the promises of God. There's a very important part of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not mentioned here in Genesis 26, but it's mentioned elsewhere. And it's the promise from God that I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. That's a divine protection clause. If people treat you well, I'll treat them well. But if someone as much as dishonors you, Isaac, they're gonna have to deal with me. That's the message. God will take care of them. If you're messing with Isaac, you're messing with God. God. That, that's a significant promise there, a promise of safety and security. So Isaac need not fear men, but he did. And before we cast stones at him, you know that we do too. In fact, the fear of man is one of the biggest sin problems that Christians have. I bet you it is dominating this room right now. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man is a snare. It's a snare, it's a, a trap. Now we may not fear um, you know, someone trying to kill us, but but we do fear others won't approve of us. We fear people will look down on us. We fear rejection. We fear confrontation. We even fear sometimes people in the church. And the fear of man can lead us to do absolutely irrational, insane things. Paranoid things. Because the thing that you fear is the thing that controls you. And you're going to do anything to appease those fears. It really becomes about the thing that you worship. It's a worship issue. If you need to lie and cheat, so be it. If if that helps me deal with the thing I'm afraid of, okay. If you need to puff yourself up to look greater uh, so that you can get approval from others, so be it. Uh, If you can serve others, you see, you can, even, you can even do things outwardly that look good, but the reason why you're doing it is fear of man. You, you can serve others so that they will like you. That's, that's fear of man. You're being controlled. Fear of man uh, can cause you to manipulate others, mistreat others, pursue certain relationships, and avoid other ones. It can drive you to look outwardly like a saint or live like the worst of sinners. And it can cause you to project a, a false image on social media. While while you're just desperately checking your notifications for likes. Fear man is a brutal, brutal taskmaster. And it renders you powerless to love God and to love others. Because all you're doing is thinking about you. Right? I mean, that's what's happening with Isaac here. His his fear is leading him to to throw his wife under the other bus and, and possibly get other people into trouble as well. Ian Duguid writes that when Isaac stopped fearing God and putting obedience to God first, he started fearing everyone else. As long as he was fearing God, he had nothing to fear from any man or woman. When he started thinking only about how to protect himself, he stopped thinking about others and he stopped caring for them. This is what obsess- uh, obsessive self protection does. You are drawn inward, you're navel gazing. You have no time to think about other people because you're too busy trying to protect yourself. And some of you here know exactly what that's like. And I do too. I've fallen in those areas. So what's the the remedy? What's the remedy for the fear of man? The psalmist says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Notice that part of his trusting God is a hope in God's word. He says, in God whose word I praise. We, we talked about this chapter last week in, in men's prayer group and that just really stuck out to me. In God whose word I praise. We think about praise, we think about praising God, not necessarily about praising his word, but, it, but, it's, but it's connecting the, the importance of, 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 of God's word and God's promises. Our, our response to fear Needs to be a trust in his word, a trust in those promises. Elsewhere, the psalmist writes, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Hope is found in God's promises in the trial, not in our strength and schemes to get us out of the trial. His word gives us the wisdom to know how to respond to trials the right way. And his word gives us the strength and courage to make it through those trials. And all this should underscore the priority of this book. It should underscore the priority of God's word and your life. Are you reading it? Are you, are you meditating on it? Are you, are you memorizing it? Are you, are you getting God's word into your heart? If, if we're not doing this, we're not going to be able to draw on the, on the promises of his word when the trial comes. Uh, we're not going to have anything to hold on to. Uh, if, if we don't regularly feed on, on his word, then, then we're at the mercy of every little thing that comes our way that might rattle us. Every day we should be opening up this book. Every day we should, because we're forgetful people. I mean, look at Isaac. I mean, he gets scared and he disobeys and then he gets the assurance of God's word. That's great. Then he obeys. Very next verse, same problem. Fear, disobedience. This is how we are. We, we all are like this. And Isaac has forgotten in this moment God's word. And it wasn't just that he was not listening to God's word, but here's the other piece of the equation. He was inventing new words. He was putting in his mind all kinds of scenarios of all kinds of awful things that could happen. Do you do that? Do you invent scenarios? and you just start responding all day long to all of the, the imaginations that are going on in your brain. You spend your whole day constructing scenarios of the things that you're afraid of, and you actually, in truth, have zero idea that the thing you're afraid of is actually gonna happen. Proverbs 28.1 says that the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. Sometimes we, God's people, can act like the wicked and we flee when no one is pursuing. Because 99.9% of the time, it bears out that whatever we were afraid of uh, happening, it doesn't even happen. And and then, of course, I I can see someone here saying, well, okay, but what about that 0.1%? What about that? That could happen. That might happen, right? But the Bible never tells you to dwell on the awful scenarios in your imagination. It instead tells you to think on things that are true. Think on things that are true. Think on God's word. Think on God's promises. Let your interpretation of reality, let your interpretation of the situation be informed by his word and not your own. By by his word that that is real and true and and gives us a a framework by which we we can interpret reality. Instead of what's running around in your own head, one of the most dangerous things that you can do is just listen to all kinds of words that are not this word. Being alone with your thoughts in the middle of the night, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. If only Isaac had remembered that. Uh, that the, if he could have remembered that promise that he was under God's personal protection due to the covenant that God made with his father Abraham. I mean, he was reminded of all this just one verse back. But he forgot, again. Well, this deception goes on for a long time. A long time, it says, could could have been years, I don't know. Um, And up up to this point, Isaac has been actually proven wrong in this. Yeah, there's some people that are asking about Rebecca, but you don't really get the impression that there's just you know all these people that are actually trying to to marry her. There's there's no no one seeking negotiations or anything like that. Uh, Isaac has overblown the danger. And that's what fear does. Uh, It causes us to warp everything. But God has been graciously protecting them all of this time. And and he's about to protect them in another way, namely by exposing the lie. Verse 8 says that when he'd been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, uh, looked out of a window. And he's probably checking out his kingdom you know, oh, what's going on? This is, this is my lands, and he's looking around, and he's like, see something over there, and it says that he saw Isaac laughing with Rebecca, his wife. He's laughing. Moses is trying to be dis- discreet here, y'all. This is a family show. He is laughing. Now, 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 he, by laughing, he doesn't mean ha ha. Hey, Rebecca, I have this funny joke. Is she the one about the Canaanite and the Egyptian? Ha 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 ha. There they are laughing. Abimelech's like, ah, oh, Isaac must have told a good one there. That's not what's going on here. If that's all it was, Abimelech wouldn't have put two and two together. Now, if you're familiar with the Hebrew, you'll see that Moses actually has a sense of humor. Uh, there is a wordplay in verse 8. What does Isaac's name mean in Hebrew? Anybody know? You're allowed to talk in church. Laugh, laughter. He laughs, and so Moses is saying, la- laughter was laughing with Rebecca, or he saw Isaac, Isaac King, with Rebecca. There's obviously some intimacy going on here that would never occur between brother and sister. And Abimelech is outraged. Verse nine, he said, he called Isaac to him. She's your wife. How could you say she's my sister? Isaac said to him, "Because I thought lest I die because of her." You see Isaac's problem? He he confesses it right there in the verse. "Because I thought." Because I thought. He didn't think on things that were true. He didn't think on the promises. He invented scenarios and then that informed his actions. And then he justified his deception. But God's grace is still in operation. You might think that Abimelech would draw his sword in anger and kill Isaac on the spot. And then take Rebekah. It's not what he does. Instead, Abimelech says, what is this you have done to us? Uh, One of the people might have easily lain with your wife and would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, Abimelech... Though a pagan Canaanite has at least some sense of moral conscience and he recognizes that adultery could have taken place in this situation and that would have brought guilt. And so this pagan king seems more concerned about the sanctity of marriage than the man of God. And he rebukes the man of God. And how tragic it is when God's people live in such a way that brings reproach upon God's name. God uses this situation to humble and chasten Isaac. But God also shows grace because Abimelech in his righteous anger does not only not kill Isaac, but he orders a decree of protection upon him. And so Isaac had been wrong about Abimelech and his people all along. No one was gonna kill Isaac. And, 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 and God was protecting them. Isaac's deception was absolutely useless and accomplished nothing besides offending his host and bringing reproach on God's name. But God in his grace uses that situation and brings about further protection upon Isaac through the decree of Abimelech. So after Isaac's absolute colossal failure, how does God respond? By grinding his servant into the dust? No, he responds with more grace. The grace of God's provision. That's my next portrait of grace, the grace of God's provision. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. This is outrageous. This is outrageous grace. 100-fold. That'd be good any time. But reaping 100-fold in a famine is absolutely ridiculous. In fact, as as we um, we read earlier uh, over the next several verses he becomes so powerful that Abimelech revokes his visa and kicks him out. And so Isaac is driven into the wilderness. And, and over the next few verses, he's digging these wells and, and he, wherever, everywhere he goes, he finds water and the Philistines are envious and they keep following around saying, no, 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 that's our water. Even though Isaac did all the work. You have to understand that in a semi-arid region like southern Canaan, Canaan water is a big deal. It's, a, it's really a matter of life or death all the more so during a time of famine. And so, so the Philistines are opposing Isaac's claim on the water. They're arguing with him over it. But eventually in verse 22, he digs a well, finds water. There's no fighting over it this time. And he says, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Hold on to that word fruitful. And then look down to verse 24 where God appears to Isaac again, and he says, I will multiply your offspring. Those words, fruitful, in verse 22, multiply. Verse 24, does that ring a bell? Does that trigger something in your mind? That's taking you all the way back to the beginning of the book, the beginning of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, God gives Adam and Eve the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Fruitful, fruitfulness, And multiplication is a sign of God's blessing. And these verses signal God's hand is on Isaac. And I think Isaac knows that now because he even talks about this aspect of fruitfulness that God is giving. Now, in verse 24, you should also notice that the first thing God said to him was, I am with you. So here we go again, we've come full circle. The story began with God's assurance of his presence. Now as we're getting closer to the end of the story, uh, we see the same assurance. But this time he says something else. He says, fear not, I am with you. And the conclusion that we should come to in response to God's presence is that we should not be afraid. Isaac's been afraid the whole chapter thus far. And now he's beginning to see that there is no point in that. Why? Because God has been with him all along, all of this time. And, and, and so he, he now is free to embrace the glorious truth that every single one of God's people can rejoice in, including you, that the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now we move on to the final portrait of God's grace in this chapter, and it's the grace of God's peace. The grace of God's peace. Peace. God's assurances of his presence and that he is for Isaac could not have come at a better time. Because in verse 26, who shows up? Abimelech and his commander. They're approaching the camp. Under normal circumstances, if the king and his commander are coming and there's already been some tension going on, this could be a bad thing and not end well at all. But Isaac, Isaac is fearless now. Verse 27, he says... Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? Isaac's different now than he was prior in the chapter. He's confident, not in himself, but but in God who is with him. He's finally getting it. And it turns out that Abimelech actually hasn't come to attack. They've come to write a treaty. It's become clear to Abimelech that the hand of God is on Isaac's life and and that God has made Isaac powerful and they, they don't want any trouble. By the way, this is more grace from God. Remember, Isaac totally failed and blew his witness when he lied to the king earlier. But even in God's deeply flawed servants, which are all of his servants, by the way, even in God's deeply flawed servants, God's hand can be upon them in such a way that God's glory is manifested in the life of that flawed servant. That should encourage you if you feel like you've ever blown your witness and a poorly represented God. God can still use you in the future to glorify him and point to him in front of a watching world. And by the grace of God, Isaac has recovered from his failure as he stands now fearless, eyeball to eyeball with Abimelech. And I'm, I'm blown away by this change in Isaac, cowering at a famine, cowering at imaginary enemies, now standing his ground before Abimelech, How can Isaac do this? How can can any of us break free from the bondage of fearing everything? Here's how. By fearing the one and only thing that we should fear. As Psalm 112 says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. The irony is that when you fear everything else, you never experience peace. It is only when you fear the Lord and trust Him that you experience genuine peace. Those verses there in Psalm 112, some of, my, some of my favorite verses, when you fear the Lord, it means you're not afraid of bad news. A lot of Christians are afraid of bad news right now. There's a lot of bad news circulating. They're in bondage to the, to the fear that is being produced in the media. Because they want ratings. And you better keep watching. Because if you turn it off five minutes later, that thing that you absolutely have to know is is is, is gonna happen and you, you can't miss that. Because your very life depends on it. Turn off the TV for six months. You're gonna be fine. Don't be afraid of bad news. Fear God. When you fear the Lord and trust him, then you'll experience that genuine peace. I find find verse 29 rather humorous. Uh, The the king says, let's make a covenant with you. Uh, We have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. That's not true. It's not true at all. Abimelech kicked him out. And and his people kept following him around everywhere, harassing him and fighting over water rights. But Isaac is gracious here. He, He doesn't push back. He's learned something of the magnanimity of his father Abraham, and he demonstrates the New Testament principle, do not repay evil for evil, but repay it with good. And that's an act of faith, by the way, because because you're entrusting the situation to the Lord. It's also more evidence that Isaac is no longer afraid, living in selfish self-protection mode. He's grown in his faith, and he signs the treaty over a covenant meal. He sends them on their way, by the way, he sends them on their way. Like, uh, uh, I, at first, earlier, Abimelech is the one who is sending. Now, as Isaac, Isaac's in the position of authority, he sends them away, and he becomes a living example of Proverbs 16, 7, that says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And here's, the, here's the real funny part. After all that, verse 32 says, the same day, Isaac's servants came to him and said, we found water. <laughs> Hilarious. God just keeps lavishing grace upon grace upon grace. More water? All right, I'll take it. Bring it on. Remember, this whole thing that kicked off this journey at the beginning of the chapter was Isaac's fear of famine, fear of a lack of provision. And yet by the time we get down near the end of the story, Isaac's having bumper crops and finding water all over the place. It's crazy. Think about it. Isaac disobeys God, lacks faith, and as a result, he gets rich and powerful. How's that work? He didn't do anything to earn that. Precisely. That's the point. Isaac has been faithless. God has been faithful to do everything that he's promised to do. Because that's how God is. That's our God. That's your God. Now, This text is not meant to teach that God just makes all of his people filthy rich. That's not it. In the immediate context, Isaac is seen as the heir of the covenant, the one to have many offspring and be a great nation that God will bless. And God is causing Isaac now to flourish as he is the next step into becoming this great nation. But it's all based on God's grace and mercy and love, not on anything that Isaac has done to earn it. This would be one of the points, I think, to to Moses' original audience, those Israelites who were collectively the heirs of the promises. As they read the story here of God's gracious dealings with Isaac, it would drive home to them the whole point of why God was being so kind to them. Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy 7, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more, new, more in number than any of the people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. In other words, it's not because you're awesome that I chose you. It's not because you're fantastic that, 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 I'm, that I'm bringing you into my, my people. He says, no, 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 you're not awesome. You are the fewest of people. So then the question is, well, why? Why, 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 does, why does he love us? And then he says, it's because the Lord loves you (laughs) and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You didn't earn God's love. Uh, You weren't better than anyone else. God God says, I didn't didn't love you because you earned it. I I set my love on you simply because I love you. I love you because I love you. (laughs) And, And because I keep my promises. And so this is why God doesn't cast Isaac away when he sins, even though that's exactly what he deserves. But here's the thing. God is more gracious and more kind and more good than we can possibly imagine. Yeah. He's way more generous than you are. Yeah. When someone crosses you, <laughs> watch out. And so if God's treatment of Isaac in the wake of his sins and his failures annoys you, <laughs> well, why, why is God doing this when Isaac was like that? If that annoys you, don't go there lest you want God to revoke his even more gracious and kind treatment to you. Now you say, Deemer, what do you mean? What I mean is, is that while we aren't meant to take Isaac's wealth as a lesson that God makes all of his people materially wealthy, we should take it that God is exceedingly generous to all of his people, giving them far more than what they deserve, treasures that are even greater than what Isaac enjoyed. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 invites all of God's people, including you this morning, right now, to exult in the overwhelmingly generous provision of God to us, a people who have been chosen by God as his treasured possession, not because we're great, not because we're awesome, but simply because he loves us and he's awesome. As it says in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Check it out. In love, he predestined us for adoption. He loves you because he loves you. Don't, don't, don't try to figure it out. Just accept it and appreciate it. Now, Isaac has not been totally impressive in this chapter. He's had some stumbles for sure. But in verse 25, he gets it. He gets the whole point, I think, of chapter 26, of everything that's happened here. And I hope we're starting to get it. It says in verse 25, he built, as a result of everything that's happened, he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. He called on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? means worship, yes, but that word called carries the sense not just of worshiping, but of preaching. Proclaiming God's name. Isaac is becoming a preacher. He would have had a very large church, probably in the hundreds, when you include all the servants and hired mercenaries and workers. And I can imagine that he preached a great sermon that night. I like to think of it as being night, if, if like if I was doing the movie, that's how I have it in my head, at night, under the, under the stars, under the twinkling campfires, and, and preaching this, proclaiming the name of the Lord, uh, and, and in light of everything that we just read in this chapter, it's hard for me to, to, uh, to think that the sermon was not dominated by a message exalting God's amazing grace to a wretch like him. Who showed undeserved kindness and generosity to him, even when Isaac proves faithless, God proves ever faithful. It's one of the big takeaways from this chapter. Thank God he does not treat us according to our sins. It's the whole point of a a, a strange chapter full of travelogues, lies, failures, and well digging. God is good, God is gracious, God is faithful. No matter what the circumstances you're going through right now, know that he is faithful. When there is famine in the land and there seems to be no way out, he is faithful. When there is human opposition and conflict, he is faithful. And when you have sinned for the 10,000th time, he is faithful. And if you doubt it, you need to know that you and I actually have a greater assurance of God's faithfulness than Isaac ever did. You may ask, well, how's that? How'd that be? Isaac had God appear to him twice. That's cool. Yeah, it is. But Isaac did not have a bloodied and crucified Savior. And Isaac did not have an empty tomb. What God has given you and me is an even more powerful word and sign of God's commitment to us than Isaac ever had. Because God sent his son, his perfectly faithful son, Jesus, to die for, not for a good and faithful people... But for people like us who are just as fickle and failing as Isaac. And Jesus died as a sacrificial substitute, shedding his blood, taking the punishment for our sins and for the sins of all who call on his name so that all who do call on his name might be forgiven his death paid the price for our sin his resurrection proved the payment was sufficient this is the proof of god's faithfulness of god's love and the and it's proof of the glorious fact that god is not against us but he is for us and so the apostle paul in romans 8 overflowing with with amazement says what shall we then say to these things If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so we sing, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for getting us through a long message in a very warm room. Thank you for your strengthening grace, strengthening me, keeping my voice strong. Father, I pray that you would Increase in us a sense of gratitude and humble thanksgiving for the grace that you have lavished upon us, the generosity that you have poured out upon us, Lord. Thank you that though our sins are many, our mercies are more, and so as we leave, your mercies are more, so as we leave this place today, help us to walk away exulting in that truth. If we are your people, then let us not be walking away downcast and, and, and feeling like you're not on our side. You've, you've proven it by slaughtering your son for us. And so let us experience and enjoy the peace and security that comes with knowing that you're present, Emmanuel, God with us, knowing that your son has died for us, and knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you're with us always, lavishing grace after grace, even to the end of the age. In Jesus' name, amen.